0: Great, good morning. Now come on, you all watched Bishop Michael yesterday. (laughs) Libby said to me, you saw Bishop Michael yesterday? Just be like that. (laughs) No pressure. So good morning. Good morning. Okay, better better, better. Uh, My name is David Westlake. As uh, Livy said, I I, uh, lead the work of International Justice Mission here in the UK. If you're not certain, IJM is the largest anti-slavery organisation in the world. We seek justice by fighting slavery. That involves rescuing people held captive and it involves prosecuting or working with the police and the justice system to prosecute those who are slave traders and slave owners all of which sounds very heavy, doesn't it? And I used to loathe coming to services where people like me were speaking because I knew they were going to make me feel bad and it was going to cost me money. So I make two promises for you at the beginning. One is I'm not going to try and make you cry. And the second is I'm not going to ask you for money. We can all relax. It's going to be worse than that. I'm gonna ask you for something far more expensive than money. I'm gonna ask you to join us on the front line of the fight to end slavery by using your time and your prayer life. Far more costly. So slavery. Many of us, I suppose, think that uh, slavery was abolished 200 years ago. William Wilberforce, the transatlantic slave trade. Many of us also will be aware that slavery continues. In fact, We'll be about 90 minutes in this uh, service by the time we've come in and said hi and all those things. And in that 90 minutes, 180 children will be sold. 180 children were sold during the first service. Every, two, every minute, another two children are sold. Every minute of every hour of every day, relentlessly. And they're sold into sweatshops and brothels and factories. And of course, we know and believe that children don't belong in sweatshops and brothels and factories. Children belong in playgrounds and families and schools. And God knows their names. All 180 that will be sold. They are known to our Father because they are his children. Made in his image people he created for destiny to have a future and a hope and Jesus said the enemy is like a thief who comes to steal kill and destroy and slavery is one of the most overt violent nasty ways the enemy can steal kill and destroy but Jesus said he has come to bring life to bring restoration And one of those slaves, let me introduce you to her, is a girl called Anita. I met her a year ago. I met her in a very strange circumstance. I met her in a really, really, really posh hotel in Chennai, India. Um, Very extravagant hotel. And there was a reception and everyone was dressed up to the nines. And uh, there was uh, great food. And uh, the guest of honor was the speaker of the Indian National Parliament. The great and the good were there And so was Anita. And the event was um, an award ceremony to honor people who'd made some kind of uh, step against slavery. So there was police commanders who had uh, rescued slaves, done raids, there was district administrators who had helped process people from slavery to make sure they had their papers and were rehabilitated into society, all sorts of people. And there was Anita. And Anita was very different from the others. She was very low caste. She had received very, very little education in her life. And she was about 17. And she was two years into an IJM aftercare program. Because two years earlier, she'd been rescued from a brothel in Calcutta. She'd been sold there when she was about 13. Very poor background, and some people came to the village and they offered jobs in the city, but it was a lie. And out of desperation, the family thought they were doing the right thing for her and the right thing for their family, but they were tricked and she was sold into a brothel. For two years, she was abused and sold for rape every day. And then she was rescued. And that was wonderful, but even more wonderful or as wonderful. Through that two-year process, she found God and God found her. And God introduced her to who she really was all over again. And God restored the image that he had made her to be. He restored her sense of destiny and she had decided that she wasn't just going to scurry away and try and get on with life and forget about this awful abuse. She wasn't going to hide from the shame. What she was going to do was be a voice to her community, to other families like her family, to other girls like her, to warn them of when the traffickers came, what to look for, to warn them away from the dangers that she had experienced. And she had begun traveling around villages and communities explaining what had happened to her, and helping people avoid the same fate. She was really low caste, she was badly educated, she had been horribly abused, and she blew that room of the great and the good away with her authenticity, with her passion, with her confidence, with her commitment. And as I heard her speak, I remembered what God had said to Moses when God told Moses to go and bring the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He said, they won't come away empty-handed. They'll plunder the Egyptians. I listened to Anita speak, and that verse came to my mind, and I thought, you have not come out of slavery empty-handed. You have come out of slavery as a dignified, powerful woman of God. God restores. And Christians all through history have been committed to caring for others, have been committed to bringing God's liberation to others. And one of the Bible stories that underpins that conviction and that compassion is the one that we read today, the story of the Good Samaritan, one of the most famous stories, I guess, that Jesus told. And we know it so well, don't we? Jesus tells the story, a man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and as he told the story, there had been tutting in the audience. Really, he went from Jerusalem to Jericho on that road? That's a terrible road. Bad things happen on that road. The police should do something about that road. Jesus continues, and he fell amongst robbers, and he was mugged and left at the side of the road. And the crowd would have said, "Huh, told you so. Told you so. That road's awful. Someone should do something about that road." Probably left for dead. Jesus continues. And then along came a priest, and the crowd would have gone, Yay, a priest! Priests are good. And Jesus says, And he walked by on the other side. The crowd would go, Ah. Oh. Then Jesus said, But then a Levite came, came along, and the crowd would have gone, Yay, a Levite! They're good, they work really hard. Priests, who knows what they do? <laughs> Levites work really hard, they do all the hard lifting. The Levite will sort it all out. And Jesus says, and the Levite walks by on the other side. And then Jesus said, and then a Samaritan comes along. And at the mention of the word Samaritan, some in the crowd would have groaned and others would have spat on the floor. They'd have murmured to themselves, a Samaritan, that's all this poor man needs. Samaritan, probably finish him off because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And then Jesus delivers the punchline that we all know, because it was the Samaritan who acted compassionately. It was the wrong person. It was the unqualified person. It was the despised person who went out of their way to show love. And of course, Jesus didn't just tell this story because he fancied telling a story. He told the story in response to a question. We read it, some teachers of the law trying to catch Jesus out came and said to him what do we do to get eternal life and Jesus being a very good master debater turned to them and said what do you think and they said well you have to obey the law what's the law well it's summed up with love God with everything inside of you and love your neighbor as you love yourself and Jesus says yes go do that At which point they began to feel a bit sheepish, these teachers of the law, because they thought they'd asked a really difficult question. Turns out they'd asked a really easy question that's just very difficult to live. And so they wanted to justify themselves. And so they said, So who is our neighbor then? Or this love business? And Jesus tells the story. Now, of course, what they were saying when they asked, Who is my neighbor? they were really asking, So if it's about loving people, who do we have to love? Who do we actually have to care for? Where's the limits of what we have to do? Is it our families? Is it our actual neighbors? Is it our ethnic group? Who do we have to love? And Jesus tells the story. And at the end, Jesus turns the question around because Jesus turns to them and he says, rather than who is my neighbor, he turns and says, so who was the neighbor? And Jesus turns it all around from where are the limits of who I have to love to Jesus asking, will you be the kind of people who show love to whoever needs it? Will you be the kind of people who aren't mean with your compassion? Will you be the kind of people who are neighbors to any who need it? And this church has been a neighbor to people a long, long way away. There's a girl whom you're intimately connected with, whom you've never met, called Rupa. She's a young woman now. She kind of remembers briefly, fleetingly, life before she was six. She remembers being happy. She remembers playing with her family. She remembers food. And then when she was six, her parents made a terrible choice. They chose to accept a job in a brick kiln near Bangalore in India. They thought they were making a wise choice that would be better for them and their family, earn more money, be more secure. But the people who ran the brick kiln were slave owners and traders. And they held them captive, Rupa's parents and her, and they put them to work. The family had, every family, had a quota of having to make from scratch 1,000 bricks a day. If they didn't meet their family quota, food was withheld. There wasn't a lot of food anyway, and they were beaten. It was a horrible, horrible place to be held. They were held captive, and they experienced violence. One of Rupert's saddest memories is seeing her mother, along with the other women in the brick kiln, abused sexually. There was no one to protect them. It was scary growing up in that environment for a young girl, entering her teenage years. So in order to try and protect her, Rufus' parents arranged a wedding for her when she was about 13, to a boy who'd also grown up in captivity in another part of this huge brick kiln. And Benaya became her husband and they formed a family. They were moved to another bit of the brick kiln away from her parents, and so she didn't realize until she was punished for it that her parents, a couple of years later, had managed to escape. She and Benaya were on their own. And when she was 16, she became pregnant. The workload didn't stop. And in her eighth month of pregnancy, she was she experienced an accident in the kiln. She had a week of agony and bleeding. And she gave birth to a stillborn child on her own in a shed with no medical care and no one around her because Benaya had not been allowed. To stop work she was really ill and devastated and heartbroken and one week later she was put back to work a couple of years later she became pregnant again and this time Benaya said whatever it does to me i am going to do the work you are going to rest we're not going to lose another baby and that's what they did and Thankfully, Viju was born healthy and well, but this made this little family desperate to do something different, desperate to get out. And they plotted and they planned, and one night in the middle of the night, they ran for it. For six months, they lived in the woods, in the forest around this brick kiln, and they survived on scavenging stuff and on finding firewood, which they sell, bits of driftwood that they sold as firewood. In the villages, always living in fear that the, the kiln owner and his henchmen would spot them. And that's what happened. There was one day when Viju needed a doctor. And they crept into a village where they knew there was a doctor. Benaya safely got Rupa and Viju to the doctor's house and he went off in search of some food for them. But they'd been spotted. And the kiln and his henchmen came and grabbed Rupa and Viju and took them back to the kiln where they were put back to work. Benaya, as you can imagine, was devastated. He came back and his wife and child were gone. Beside himself, he began searching for them, out in the open, not afraid anymore, but just desperate. Unfortunately, he ran into some international justice mission staff and... They calmed him down and they looked after him and they got him to make a complaint, you know, make a report. And they started working with him and the police to build the evidence for what was going on in this brick kiln. And they built the evidence and they got the police to decide to raid it. And they raided it. And they freed lots of families in captivity, including Rupert and Viju. A year into their aftercare programme, Benaya and Rupa and Viju are settled back in their village. Benaya's got a job in a factory that pays the right rate. Rupa is able to be at home and look after Viju, and she's learning dressmaking skills so that she has a trade for the future. And together, at the weekends, they go and share their story in the villages around to warn people of what can happen. The kiln owner is still being pursued through the justice system. It will be some years, but relentlessly, IJM will not give up. I told that story because you had a role in it. And your role was the Good Samaritan because you partner with that bit of IJM's work. And money from this church helps pay for those investigators, for those lawyers, for those social workers. You didn't walk by on the other side. This is personal to me. You see, 13 years ago, I was in another part of the world. I was in Chiang Mai in Thailand. I was working with, I was international director of Tear Fund and I was working with Tear Fund partners there. And I was walking, it was about seven o'clock at night, I was walking down a brightly lit street in the center of the city with a female colleague. And a young girl came up to me and asked me if I wanted to have sex with her. Her opening price was the equivalent of seven pounds. Lord only knows what I could have bargained her down to had I been so inclined. I kept walking. She could not because her owner made her work that patch of pavement. I couldn't get her out of my head. I had an intellectual knowledge of trafficking and slavery and exploitation and abuse, but now I had a brief encounter with a person. Tear Fund at the time didn't really do much work in that kind of space, but I knew the partners I was working with in Chiang Mai did, and so I talked to them, and I I suppose I had some kind of romantic notion that we could find that girl. We didn't find that girl. But they did research on the bars and the brothels in that area, and she was probably... Well, she was mid-teens, so she was probably 14, 15, or 16. She probably had been trafficked from one of the hill tribes, a despised ethnic group. And she would probably work there until she died. And that was probably going to be in her early twenties of AIDS. That day I kept walking and I walked away from her. That night in my room, I promised God that I would never walk away again. And that commitment and that choice led me eventually to leading IJM here in the UK. Because there's millions of girls like that girl. There's millions of Rupas and Benayas and Viju's. William Wilberforce said that in order to defeat slavery three things were needed. Awareness, money and prayer well as a church as a community you've made yourself aware in partnership with IGM in mornings like this you've made yourself aware of the horrible reality of what's going on in the world and you've been generous as a church and many individuals in the church so I'm asking you for prayer I'm asking you for prayer if we're going to knock on the doors of sweatshops and brothels and factories we surely need to first knock on the doors of heaven We surely need to make that difference. A friend of mine was involved in raiding slave places and rescuing. And there was a quarry in India. And they knew that slaves were being held there and used their forced labor, bonded labor. And they planned a rescue. They got the police involved, the social workers, the district officials. It was all... Proper and good and they did the rescue and they found over a hundred slaves in this quarry and they spent the day processing these people working out who was who, where they came from how to reunite them with their roots and their families if that was appropriate, how to just move them on to the next phase and at the end of it there were three children left over and they were about 12, 10, 8, they had come only just recently to the quarry. No one knew who they were. They presumed that they were siblings because they were that kind of age and they'd come together, but no one knew. So my friend and a social worker had to arrange a specialist hostel for them, a children's home for them, because they were so vulnerable, so young. So they put them in their car and they started driving off to the place they'd identified. And after a while, the oldest girl decided she was going to be the spokesperson, and she said, "Where where are you taking us? What's happening to us?" And my friend started explaining, "Well, you've been held um, captive, and that's wrong. And we've rescued you, and we're going to take you to somewhere where it's going to be safe, and you're going to be looked after, and you'll have food, and a doctor will look at you, and eventually you'll go to school, and we'll try and work out where your family is." She fell quiet. Just a few minutes later, she said again, "Are we in trouble?" Are you going to beat us? What's happening to us? And again, my friend and the social worker explained that no, they weren't in trouble, they weren't going to be beaten, that that was part of their past and a new day had started. They gave them some bananas because it had been a while since food. These children from India held these bananas not knowing what to do with them. They'd never been given bananas before. They had to be shown that you peel them and eat the inside. The girl kept asking. And eventually she said again, don't beat us, what have we done wrong? Where are you taking us? And my friend explained again, you're not going to be beaten, you're not in trouble. You have been held captive and that's wrong and you've been rescued and you're going to somewhere that's safe. That's what we do. We don't sell you for work. We're not going to make you work again. You're not in trouble. We rescue people like you. She fell silent. And a minute or so later, she just said, what took you so long? Brothers and sisters, the 180 children sold while we're here what takes us so long. The Good Samaritan is for us, where Jesus says, who will be a neighbor? Might be the wrong people in the wrong country, (laughs) but will we stand up? Tomorrow, there's an investigator going undercover, wearing hidden cameras and microphones. Into a brothel into a brick kiln on a fishing vessel getting the evidence really dangerous they need our prayer there are lawyers stuck with cases going through horribly corrupt or colluding or just terribly bureaucratic systems to try and bring perpetrators to justice they need our prayer and tomorrow there'll be an aftercare worker trying to find the words to connect with a young girl, to unlock her heart so she can start her walk to inner freedom, to match the physical freedom she's already received. Will you pray with us? We put out urgent prayer requests every week. You can sign up for them at the back. You'll get something that will just tell you about a raid that's going on or a case that needs help or celebrations of when things work out. Jesus asked the question, who was the neighbor? He's still asking it. Let us answer him. Thank you.